calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am thrilled to invite you to Rachel Uncensored, my podcast where I get real with my friends and celebrity guests, where we talk about all sorts of topics. From personal stories to hot-button issues, we cover it all. New episodes drop every Wednesday, so make sure you tune in on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of IGN Unfiltered, our monthly interview series where I have the pleasure of sitting down with the best, brightest, most fascinating minds in the games industry. Today, I'm joined by Cam Weber, the Executive Vice President and Group General Manager at EA Sports. Yes. Cam, welcome. Thank you. Thanks You've for got, having me. Yeah, of course. You have a uh, really fascinating background in that, as you were telling me earlier before we came in, like you're, you work in sports, but in games. Yes. And like almost nobody can say that. Yes. So um, we'll sort of work our way to that. But, but I'm always curious. I love to start at the beginning and see, I mean, you're, you're running EA Sports. Uh, you work out of Tiburon, out of Orlando there. But what, what made you want to get into the games industry when when you got started. Sure, you know, I mean, I, I didn't grow up dreaming of working in the video game industry. It never even crossed my mind. Um, but I did grow up gaming. I played games from a, a super early age, and yeah. I loved games, and I think it's also my competitive personality, myself and my friends as I grew up, um, more and more got deeper into games. And, and, you know, the times when I was most engaged in games over the years was when I was playing on the couch competitively, you know, for bragging rights, the rivalries with my friends. Yeah. That's what really kind of uh, got me into it. And, and so I always loved it. And as I, as I went through the years and went to college and I ended up being a, uh, I was a college uh, quarterback. I was a college football player. I was going to guess receiver. Yes, no, yeah, no, I was a quarterback. Kind of like tall, lanky thing going <laughs> yeah. on. So yeah, quarterback works too. And, uh, and so as I came out, I knew I always wanted a job in sports. And, and I actually, you know, went to school for business. And I, I graduated with a finance degree. Yeah. And I ended up taking a job uh, wearing a suit every day. I had a finance job for, for, for a couple of months. And I wasn't exactly happy in that role. And then I got a phone call out of the blue um, from a, uh, my old football coach uh, from our college. And, and uh, turns out there's a development uh, studio in Vancouver at the time called Radical Entertainment. Yeah. And they had made uh, a hockey game called NHL Power Play that was really good. And they were, they were looking to branch out to other sports. And they had a new publishing deal. And they wanted to make an American football game, an yeah. NFL game. And, uh, and so uh, they were interested in talking to me about maybe coming in and consulting around making a really authentic American fo football game. And so I ended up just out of curiosity, I showed up and I was told that if I came and I took this job, I would own the player database for all the players in the NFL and I would own their attributes and I would study the teams and what they did. I would design the playbooks. 
Um, that I'd sounds be, better than the, than oh, the suit Oh, it's amazing. Job, oh, right? yeah. <laughs> I'd be designing kind of these playbooks and the AI and the animation and everything that was taking place in the game. And I didn't know where it was all going to lead, uh, but I, I said, I'm in. And I, awesome. I, I took this job and I just... I learned to design sports games and, and did that for a few years and then ended up growing into a producer and, and an exec producer and a GM over time. But that's kind of how I got started. I kind of fell into it to go start working on sports games through my love of sport. That's cool. So you effectively, I mean, I guess would would it technically be gameplay designer? I mean, if you were yes. doing the, yeah, I mean, that's, yeah, you were able a, to leverage that, all that sports knowledge yes. in your head from, from being, you know, a sports fan and of yeah. course playing in college. That, that, how cool is that? Yeah, it was amazing. Awesome. And uh, you know, in that game, that football game, we never even we never even finished it because of changes in publishing deals and all these things. That right. game never shipped, and I ended up going and working on a, a, a hockey game and then a basketball game, and then we eventually got out of sports altogether um, and started making non-sports games. And by then, I'd been through through a few development cycles. I kind of learned how games were made yeah. and how the design process worked. My natural kind of uh, tendency, being a quarterback and a captain of all the teams that I was on growing up, I ended up, you know, being someone I think felt really natural in leading teams. Yeah. And that cohesiveness of a team knowing what they want to accomplish and working together seemed to come natural to me. So I ended up becoming a, a producer and, and leading a lot of different types of games over the years before coming eventually back to sports at EA Sports years later. Yeah. So one of one of those games you worked on, I just I. Thought your resume was fascinating. <laughs> Simpsons Road Rage, yeah, yes. which we got on the, the graphic behind <laughs> yeah, us here. But I haven't seen that in a long like, time. It was pretty well received yeah. game. Like, so I'm curious if you have any interesting stories behind the, the development of that game. Either like, do you when you go to make a Simpsons game, most people, and I, I don't know if you maybe you can't think this way or you don't think this way, but I think the the, the bar for expectations is kind of low, especially back then. On a, on a licensed game like sure. that. Do you play other Simpsons games of, and look at what not to do or, what, or take some cues? Or, or do you just try to not look at anything else and say, like, what can we do with this? I'm curious. You know, it you was think. interesting. It was at a time when that studio, <clears throat> Radical, Radical, we were in, in a shift where we, we, we were making a bunch of sports games and branching out to do other sorts of uh, genres. And so it was a combination of learning the Simpsons license and everything about it and watching tons of episodes and interacting with Matt Groening and Gracie Films and, and learning what was important to them yeah. um, and kind of distilling the essence of the license into a few kind of key understandings of what we knew we had to deliver on to make it a true Simpsons game. Um, so it wasn't so much about playing prior Simpsons games as much as really investing in the time and energy to really understand what the license stood for. Yeah. Um, and then understanding what we had to deliver on to really make it feel like a Simpsons game. And then on top of that, we had to develop a new driving engine, um, which I think we pretty much built from scratch back then, um, and learned kind of, you know, how we were going to build the game and build the world. We also built out the team at that point to make that game. It was a really interesting, interesting development cycle, and I learned a ton on it. And the, the thing that I really learned, um, especially in those years um, where, you know, working as kind of an independent developer, where you're, every single game I worked on seemed to be a new type of game and a new genre with a new license. Yeah. Sometimes you never get that chance to really kind of get the, the ground under you and develop an expertise and become an expert on a particular genre. Um, and what happened was, you know, I think we built that game and it came out. It was super fun. It actually sold really well. It was commercially a, a, a success for us. Um, and then it allowed that team to then go on and actually build a Simpsons Sit and Run, which actually right. was 
Probably uh, regarded yeah, better as the best game. Simpsons yes, game. absolutely. Yeah. And it did, it was a commercial success. It was a critical critical success. Um, and once again, it's that story of a team that you build that starts to gel. Um, and then eventually becomes great at what they do. And, and, and a lot of the lessons that I took from working in that era of my career, um, I, I, I use those and I see those in working with our sports teams today, which is a, you know, each team, become an, they become experts on their space and right. their game, and they, they strive to just be world-class. Con- the continuity is game. important. Absolutely, yeah. yes. Yeah. yeah, I mean, so I'm, I gotta go back yeah. for a second though. What were the the key things that you distilled the the Simpsons license down to that you had, that you had to get? I mean, I mean, a lot of it is is we had to get the humor right. One of the most valuable assets we had is just I mean the, that that IP has the most amazing voice actors, and obviously we had access to the real Hank Azaria and Julie Cavner, yeah. all these amazing voice actors. The talent that these people had, and the, their ability to in the recording studio, go from one character and then just keep reading. I mean, Hank Azaria, I remember him oh, reading, man. he's talking about, he's, he's the Bumblebee man, and then he <laughs> he literally goes from one line to the next, and now he's a different character, and he just, on the fly, can adjust and just nail every single one of those characters. And so we wanted to build a game experience that would bring that humor, the mix of all of the characters in the universe, and use that voice acting of these amazing actors to the best of our ability, and actually, the construct of um, Simpsons Road Rage is one where you were picking up characters in your car and talking with them and then picking up a different character in your car and talking with them and you were over and over interacting with different characters on the fly with yeah. kind of one-off jokes and interactions and it, and it, was, uh, it was very well suited to delivering that humor, um, the breadth and amazing characters um, that they had within the IP. Um, and then, you know, obviously having gameplay that wasn't, overly serious and was lighthearted um, and fun to play and challenging but really allowed you to just enjoy, sit back and enjoy uh, the content. After the game comes out and it's fairly well received, do you you hear from Matt Groening or or Gracie Films or any of those guys afterwards with like a, hey, good job or, I mean, clearly you heard from them because you didn't, you guys ended up doing another (laughs) game with them but I'm sort of curious what the the aftermath of that looks like. I mean, it's, they are a licensing partner and much like all the licensors I work with today, um, you develop a relationship and you meet with them regularly, you show them content along the way, they approve that content along the way Uh, and then as you finish, you know, by the time we launched this game, I mean, they had already seen and approved all the content and we're already into what are we doing with the next game and starting to talk about how we evolve it from there. So it's just a, a continued ongoing relationship that we build and maintain over time. Well, speaking of licenses, you are also involved with, uh, another highly anticipated licensed IP, uh, Scarface, the world is yours was a game that, uh, as I recall, I mean, it was. It was a triple A production. It had a big budget, big team behind it. This was not a, uh, you know, like, like some licensed games, again, that low bar I was yeah, kind of talking yeah, about yeah. earlier. This was not like a just pump and dump, let's try to qu- cash in a quick buck here. Like, you guys made a real open world game with a proper story and the whole thing. What, what was working on that like? Yeah, that was another big learning experience. Um, you know, that, that's what, uh, when I look back, that's where I learned a lot of the lessons about what um, what to do and not to do when working with a very large team. So, um, you know, I think the thing with game development, you can go from a place where you have a 20-person team that's tight and cohesive. Yeah. You have a ton of fun working together. Communication is easy and it flows every single day. 
And you get those kind of 60 to 100 person teams where that starts to become a challenge. And then you have to kind of split up into subgroups within your teams and rely on leadership and yeah. communication among them. And then you get to teams where, you know, like on that project where we, we pressed above that and we had a lot of people contributing to the project and it becomes more and more difficult to keep communication and collaboration between the different, different groups together. And, and um, while that project was a real challenge, I think that project was over three years. Wow. Um, we made a lot of mistakes, but we also did a lot of amazing things as well. Um, and uh, we're able to kind of bring it to the finish. And I just remember how much we learned from that project. And we had a ton of fun making it. And I think the game did some interesting things. Um, and once again, as we kind of iterate and move on, um, I think it was, a, it was one of those projects that really allowed that studio at Radical to, to cut its teeth on, on some of the giant open world simulation elements that you have to build and set up for an open world game to be successful. Yeah, and, uh, I mean, Hulk Ultimate Destruction yeah. would come later, which was super yeah, well received. Yeah, I, yeah could... Uh, I don't think Al Pacino's ever done a game, and he, he did not, par- uh, for whatever reason, participate. I don't know if uh, he needed like a, another Brinks truck to back up to his front door or what the deal was. Well, no, I think it, it, no, it was, uh, it was more just uh, having a voice actor that was going to be you know, excited and willing to come in and spend the kind of hours that we right. needed to kind of get all the content we needed. Um, and there had been many years between when, when that movie had, had gone live and when, we, and when the game was made. Um, you know, 20, 25 years later. So um, it was just the most viable solution at the time. So we, we, we found a, a sound-alike voice actor, did a pretty good job. Yeah. Um, and he was able, to, I remember he was just able to, you could just ask him questions and he could just stay in character and he was just <laughs> nailing it with every single line as we talked to him. So um, yeah, it was, it was fun. It was a fun project. So yeah. uh, then you, you, you move on to EA Sports uh, you hook in with the uh, Vancouver team up there. You're working on FIFA, some of their projects. Um, sort of moving more to, to now, I'm sort of curious. You know, in recent years, every EA sports game, every EA game, has moved over to Frostbite technology. So I'm curious, you know, that's got to be a decision that goes pretty high up, quite probably to you, mm-hmm. where you've got these successful uh cohesive teams that are they have their routine <laughs> making the sports analogy again and um was that a tough decision to say hey we we want to get everybody on frostbite was it was it a difficult adjustment for those teams to do that you know this this kind of went back to the point where andrew wilson so you know patrick soderland used to run our what we used to be called the games label and andrew wilson ran the sports label yeah kind of had two factions in the company and um, and I think by that point, we had realized that consolidating on common engines and the, the, the benefits that come from that and having teams contribute and build kind of, uh, you know, the rising tide lifting all boats. Sure. Um, and at that point, we, we had the Frostbite engine that was fueling most of the games and the games label. And then we had a collection of technology on the sports side. Um, which we kind of commonized and brought together within sports and called Ignite. Mm-hmm. And when Andrew became CEO and we unified all of Worldwide Studios, and we sat down and, and we talked about where the long-term benefits would come of having one common engine. Um, and it wasn't just about making game development better and improving the quality of our games and the efficiency of what we can build, but it was also to allow us to build for the future so we could build like our data uh, platforms and our um, kind of the network that links together all of our social features. Right. Um, 
and all of our kind of online and network code that would fuel kind of our online experiences and having big, large, shared common teams that would invest in those things and invest in security and, 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 and everything that goes along with that and our analytics um, and, then, and our, our analytics systems. Um, and uh, it, uh, you know, it, it, it was something that we saw was going to be a great benefit to us. We decided to do it. We started with FIFA. Um, and FIFA was... Well, you start with the most successful yes. game in the entire yes. portfolio. Um, the reason we started with FIFA was for a variety of things. One, uh, FIFA is also our largest team. Um, they're probably our most experienced team. Yeah. Um, it's also a team that uh, had done the most work down the route of their PC uh, architecture, um, which actually made it the most natural fit to, to get to Frostbite first. The transition. First. Yeah. Um, and then we worked on Madden. We were at Madden over last year. Um, and uh, another heavy lift. Uh, but it's something we do over multiple years. So we, yeah. we started with a group of people, you know, three years earlier doing the initial port. And then right. in year two, they'd, it's a heavier lift. And then by year three, we switch everyone over and spend an entire cycle on the new engine. Um, and yeah, so we're, and now we're, we're chipping away at, at our other EA Sports games with the goal of getting you know, all of our titles over at Frostbite in the next few years. So it's almost, to stick with the sports analogy, it's almost sort of an on-the-fly rebuild of, of these franchises yes. from, from at least a core technology perspective. It, it, it requires us to use advanced teams, yeah. um, which is a construct that we've used in sports for many years, where we have a team that's building this year's game, right. but we also have people that are working on technologies and, and innovations for the future at the same time. Yeah, I remember when yeah. the, the three. 60 was coming out and you guys I think either a launch title or a couple months right after like NBA Live came out for for 360 and it was clearly brand like yeah. all brand new when there yeah. was still you know and you had the the PS2 original Xbox yeah. release as well so we've yeah, seen we, that we have to before. do that we have to use the kind of that that advanced team methodology um, otherwise, it's it's really difficult to build big disruptive uh, things, especially when right. they require new technology. I mean, it's I think I think something that I try to mention this from time to time because I I've t- I talk to some sports developers here and there, and I I feel like sports game developers have what may be one of the hardest jobs in the games industry in that they effectively have between pre production and the the sort of the testing certification process. Is it fair to say that? The cycle is really about nine months. Yeah, I mean, per, per, you know, between release, between the major annual releases, obviously they're updating content all yes. year long. But is that that's about yeah. what it is, right? We, we try to have our creative um, in a really good place for the following year, going into the summer. So prior to launching Madden, the next you know few weeks here. Um, we have a pretty good idea of what we're building for Madden next year. Yeah. Um, but we leave some room within kind of that capacity and schedule based on the response that we get sure. from fans of the current game. Um, we also have a kind of good idea of where we're going long range with each franchise. So we have to, in these annual franchises, you have to put a premium on long range pr- planning for our creative. So we have to look at you know, where, where our consumers are going in the gaming industry, what, what experiences they want, um, what kind of our insights are telling us uh, from all the research we do. And we kind of set like kind of a North Star for each one right. of our franchises where we want to go in the next few years. So is it like literally a, like a, in a job interview? Like is it a five-year plan? Well, or is, it's is it that like, far out? I would say it's more like a, a three-year three year, yeah. plan, but it's not exactly three. It's about where are you going in the next few years. Sure, yeah. And we're always kind of coming back to that. And we're always 
um, kind of reaffirming the direction we're going and making sure that it's the right direction because things change in our industry constantly. And it's not just for us. It's not just about the way that gamers are playing games. It's the way that, that sports fans are consuming sports content. I mean, I watch, I, my, I have a 10-year-old son who's about, about, about to turn 11, and he is a diehard fan of the NBA and the NFL, and, and, um, and he follows, you know, the world of soccer as well. And I watch the way he consumes sports, and him and all of his friends, they're, you know, the, the world has changed from a place where you or I might follow a, a particular team um, all season long and sit down and watch a three-hour game um, in one sitting, yeah. and it's it's gone from teams to players and stars to following highlights, and to consuming sports on multiple screens all the time. Sure. Um, when James Harden did that that filthy crossover step back last year, and you know crossed over the defender onto the ground, and he stood there for a few seconds and then dropped that <laughs> so that good. three. Um, I mean, that moment went viral within within five minutes. Millions of people had seen that highlight all over the world. Yeah. And so we have to recognize that people consume sports and sports content much differently today than they, than they ever did in the past. And so they're going to want gaming experiences that reflect that as well. I guess maybe uh, like a, a, the opposite side of that example is like a couple of years ago, daily fantasy sports was like the <laughs> yeah. biggest thing yes. on the planet. Yes. Yeah. And now it's, it's seemingly like gone. Yeah. Like their, their merger f- attempt failed and... So is that the kind of thing where you, you might be looking at like, oh, okay, this is huge. How do we look at integrating this and making it fun I mean, in, a, in a video game sense? And then, and then you know, a, a year or two later, like, oh, okay, that's, that's over. We can, we can, let's shift our priority to something else. You know, I think it's, I think it's, um, it, our, that's, it's an example. I th- yeah, but I think it's saying. more, um, you know, things like fantasy scoring are interesting. And, and you know, you, you're going to see something in our, our latest Madden mobile launch uh, coming on August 15th called Madden Overdrive. That'll have already happened by the time uh, this airs. Oh, okay. <laughs> Trust me. <laughs> um, well, you'll see in, you know, in Madden, Madden Overdrive, we just launched in the mobile space where we created this great PvP experience that uses fantasy scoring rather than touchdowns and field goals. Yeah. It's all fantasy scoring for runs and catches and all that stuff, tapping into the kind of that love of that moment-to-moment gameplay play in fantasy sports, but it's also in the way that uh, people are fascinated with um, following real-world sports both on and off the field. So you're seeing it's about the culture and lifestyle. It's following your stars, not just what they did last night on the court, but what they're doing today in the media and in social media and how um, players are living the lifestyle within the sport. And people are fascinated by it. And they consume just as much of that content as what actually happens on the field. Right. And so it's creating experience, whether it's our career modes or our story modes or creating gaming experiences yeah. that are both you know, on the streets and in, in, on the court in the NBA. Yeah, the, I, mean, the, I read in the news yesterday about James Harden and his, and his debut at the Drew League, um, right. which is in a high school gym in Los <laughs> Angeles. Um, and that's just the way the world of sports has gone. So our games in EA Sports are evolving to create much broader experiences now. Um, yeah, I feel like I, I was at EA recently playing uh, the one mode yes. in, in live. And I feel like yeah. that's, that's hearing you say that, like, yeah. oh, the one mode makes a lot of sense yes. now after hearing you sort of explain the way the yeah. company thinks about it. Yeah. Um, real, I guess I've sort of a, humor me for one more minute on the, on the technology pipeline side. Because, again, with, with all these different teams working on totally different sports, but building off of the same core uh, frostbite technology. 
how, how does that sort of technology sh- pipeline sharing work with that? Like in the sense of, does everyone add on to it? Like if the FIFA team makes a cool animation system, can the Madden team grab it? Or, or, uh, or is it more of just a, do you end up with these just pretty individualized little branches off of the same core tech? Yeah, so we have a, we have a large central Frostbite team, and, and Ken Moss, our CTO, um, is responsible for that for that group, and yeah. and and I mean that's hundreds of developers, and they are in Sweden and in Vancouver and in Orlando and many other locations. Um, and what they do is they invest in that core engine, and then what happens is they have various releases of that engine. And so as a team goes through their cycle. Um, they agree to which which um, version of Frostbite they're going to integrate with and launch on. Yeah. And so they work with the Frostbite team to integrate the latest version as it comes uh, throughout each year. Um, and then at a certain point in their schedule, they pick the moment where they say, okay, this is the version we're going to ship on. So we're not it, taking yeah. any more integrations from this point forward. And then they take the game, take it to the finish, launch it at Polish, um, and then whatever didn't make it in, they then back integrate those changes into Frostbite afterwards. And so then that central team is constantly bringing in those integrations of, of new tech and features from all the teams into the latest central version of Frostbite. And then it's going out to the various teams that are using it as they take new integrations of the latest version of Frostbite. Interesting. I'm so it goes back and stuff. forth. And it's, yeah. it's, uh, it's very tightly organized and managed. And, and there's always challenges with this sort of model, but... Um, there are immense benefits um, to what our teams can do, where they can benefit from the innovation that happens across the company. Right, and you don't have to pay anybody else for anybody else's engine. Yes, that's, that's true. <laughs> that, that's true that, that as well. That helps too. Yes, that helps. Uh, all right, so you went to, you grew up in, in British Columbia, Vancouver mm-hmm. area. Uh, you went to college there. So uh, who's your favorite Vancouver athlete of all time oh, growing Vancouver, up. Vancouver athlete. Um, Not necessarily from there, but you know who played, who made their sure, name. Sure. I mean, I grew up a a diehard Vancouver Canucks fan. I mean, I'm Canadian, so you know, hockey was a sport that I grew up loving. Um, and uh, you know, I, I also I used to listen to this. I mean, changing sports landscape. I used to listen to Canucks games on the radio yeah. in bed before I fall asleep every <laughs> single night before, you know, on the night before school. Um, but, you know, Pavel Bure, Trevor Linden, these guys were my heroes uh, when I was growing up. Um, you know, we then had, you know, uh, an NBA team. We had the Vancouver Grizzlies for a while. Brian, Big awesome. Country Reeves. Big Country Reeves. <laughs> I was a bit more of a Sharif Abdul-Rahim guy <laughs> yeah. myself. Um, but, uh, and I love the Seattle Supersonics as well. So I was a Sonics fan and, and Xavier McDaniel and... Dale Ellis, and then there was the Sean Kemp era, Gary yeah, Payton. Payton yeah. um, I actually got to meet Gary Payton uh, last year at an event, which was awesome. I introduced my son to the glove and got a picture with the glove. Um, but, uh, yeah, no, I was, I was a fan of, of all of those sports. And, and actually, um, one interesting thing is my, my cousin is Shea Weber, who plays, uh, he's one of the best defensemen in the world, uh, plays defense for the the Montreal Canadiens in the NHL oh, wow. right now, and so I've That's followed awesome. his career as he's gone along as well. Well, why yeah. not? You know, you're talking about this, the the Seattle SuperSonics. You know, hey, Nintendo has a piece of uh, the Seattle Mariners. Let's let's talk to Andrew. Let's get let's get EA to get <laughs> yes, a, help, awesome. help get an NBA team back to mm-hmm. Seattle. You know what I'm saying? I like the thinking, Ryan. They can play in the, the, EA, <laughs> yeah. the EA Sports Arena. That's, that's a good Come idea. Come on, yeah, I like that. <laughs> let's, yeah. let's get it going. Yeah. Um, 
Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. All right, so you were an executive producer, if I have this correct, on Fight Night Champions. Yes. That's on your resume as well. I'm a major Fight Night game fan. Uh, I will tell you, you talk about uh, technology powering the games. I, I'm not a big boxing fan in real life. It's not a sport I, I really follow or watch, but uh, when it came out, when Fight Night Round 3 came out for the Xbox 360, uh, that was a generational, that was a, oh my goodness, like this is, and I, then I fell in love with the game after the, the graphics pulled me in. Yeah. So I followed the series ever since, and unfortunately it seems to be a bit dormant right now. Fight Night champion, uh, are we ever going to see that again, or, 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 you know, UFC? I have to imagine is is a higher ROI. <laughs> UFC is a bigger, bigger entity right now. Where do we stand with uh, with Fight Night? Yeah. So I mean, first of all, let me just say, I, Fight Night champion. Um, you know, if I had to pick one one team and one game I've worked on in my career that I enjoyed the most, I, it probably was Fight Night Champion. It was such an amazing team. The core of that team is actually our current UFC team. Yeah. Um, but the thing that was amazing about that game um, was talking about like I always I always love working on projects where we do something we haven't done before and we and we learn a lot from it. And and that was the first. I think the first AAA sports game to pursue a, a full story mode. And so, yep. um, and we sat down at the start of the Fight Night Champion cycle, and we had just done Fight Night Round 4 and, and uh, another phenomenal, critically acclaimed boxing Absolutely. game. Um, but we were seeing some decline in you know, the commercial success. And, and the sport of boxing at the time was you know, a bit in decline and well, as well and having some challenges. So we sat down and we said, you know, how do we build and broaden the appeal of a boxing game moving forward? And if you actually look at, you know, Hollywood, you look at box office numbers, um, boxing is, it has mass market appeal in Hollywood. Um, and so we kind of said, how do we mix kind of the, the Hollywood appeal of boxing with the kind of core following of what we've done? And, and, and it led us to say, you know, let, let's, let's build a, a full story mode. And that's what we did with Fight Night Champion, learned a ton um, I loved that game. Like I said, I loved the team. And it was really a trailblazer. It was kind of before its time, uh, many years before a lot of the yeah. bigger sports games ended up integrating story modes uh, later on. But, uh, you know, that game came out. It, uh, it's done well over time. But like you said, we had the kind of the, the explosion of the UFC onto the scene at that time. Yeah. And then we were able to require that license. And it just made sense to prioritize that at the time. You're running and, a business and, and put after this all. team on UFC and... Um, and they've been doing that since then. Um, 
We talk about it all the time, though, I will say. And we talk about, you know, what would it take to, to build something else with the Fight Night IP? I would not be shocked if we do again. We don't currently have anything in development with Fight Night. Yeah. Um, but we're very aware of the following it has and that there is great equity in that brand. Um, and it's just going to be picking the right moment sometime in the future where we can... Um, build a, a, a another fight night. Well, I just feel, I was just it's funny. I was just going to say I, I feel like the right moment is if you get if you can get that that Xbox 360 moment that launch. You know, we we were here and Microsoft's already yeah. talking about their new console at yeah. E3. Like, get make it as a, a launch title yeah. for for a, for the next round of machines. Yeah. Well, that's my vote. I'm putting no, in my I vote know. with you. That, I've that got you here. Is- that's a great idea, that and, and, oh, yeah, and the, new, the new Seattle NBA team. I'm going to take both of those yeah, back with me. Those are free. It's, awesome. yeah, it's fine. Yeah. Um, all right, so, so while we're talking about your EA Vancouver days, sure. I, I would be remiss if I did not also bring up SSX. Yes. That is a, uh, you, were, you executive produced SSX. Uh, fans want SSX back. Um, now, I've, you're not going to announce any projects no. while you're sitting here, obviously, but I guess what I'm seriously curious about is what goes into a decision like that either way? Like, So if somebody at the team brings it up or maybe there's sort of a collective enthusiasm at the team of, hey, you know, when it gets up to you in, in the, the, the top of the, the ladder at EA Sports – Hey, should we bring back SSX as just an example? What what's the process when that question gets asked at the company sure. of, of evaluating like, okay, yeah, let's like let's do this, or you know what, no, this isn't quite going to work. I'm curious about the process. So first of all, let me just say just because I want credit where credit is due, I, I didn't finish SSX. I worked on it for the first. Um, two-thirds of the project, and then I ended up moving down to Tiburon, and there was okay. probably another eight months after that when the team took it to the finish, and I think they did a great job of, of finishing that project off. But, um, but I also love SSX and, and love that game. Uh, and, you know, we have talked about SSX. It's an, uh, an IP that we own that has been beloved and, and has been successful in the past. And we do have a green light process within our company, especially when it comes to... Uh, evaluating what we should fund uh, right. moving forward, but essentially what will happen is if it's a if it's a sports game opportunity, if it's something small, if it's hey let's let's try to green light a couple of months of a few people putting together some a conceptual prototype. work or something like that. Um, often that will come to myself and our EA Sports leadership team. We will look at uh, you know I have my my budget and my kind of business locked in for the fiscal year, and and we have lots of puts and takes and things we prioritize and move around during the year. And if we can look to fund an early piece of work, uh, we'll find the funds to do that by moving around and prioritizing. Um, and then once we get to a place where we might have something that looks like, hey, we've got a prototype and a pitch that could become real, then I'll loop in kind of our executives at a company level that will then, uh, basically that's a, 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 an ask uh, for a bigger budget and a bigger investment uh, for future fiscal years. And we'll go through that process and evaluate it and look at where it fits in the portfolio. Sure. And we'll have a lot of research that backs it up and, and, and all of those things. Um, so there's definitely a process, um, but it, it's kind of a phased approach where um, we can do some things at a grassroots level within yeah. the studios before we need to ask to add it to the official SKU plan. Right, makes sense. Yeah. Take, you can take little bets. Yes, here absolutely. And there. Yeah. Uh, all right, so 2011, you moved to Orlando to head up the yep. Tiburon studio there. Yep. 
I'm curious, what, what is more pressure? Heading up FIFA, where you were senior producer and then executive producer, or heading up Madden? <laughs> Which one's more pressure? Well, I, uh, you know, when I worked on FIFA, it was my first year at EA, and, and, uh, and really it was Andrew Wilson who was leading that up at the time. And, and so um, I didn't quite feel the full uh, pressure at the time of, of running that massive business. Um, so I'd say when I did go take on the Madden franchise, it probably felt like more pressure to me. Yeah. Um, they are both high-pressure franchises. Uh, and Madden, while it doesn't have the size and reach of a FIFA on a global scale, when you just look at kind of its, its, its reach impact. just within the United States and within yeah. North America, it's a very important game that, uh, and, and everything you do is under a microscope. So I think both are, are similar in that way. Uh, both teams also need to iterate and ship games on a yearly basis. Both of them have um, very high-profile live services with an ultimate team that need to be driven day in and day out uh, through the year. And we have the scrutiny of looking at the, the metrics every single day and how that live service is going. So I'd say there's a lot of similarities uh, between the two. Um, but with FIFA, there's, there's the added complexity of the globalization and all of the different versions all over the world. So you that, get the whole world mad at you if you screw up FIFA, <laughs> yes, exactly. it's just mostly Americans exactly, mad at you Exactly, exactly, yeah. Um, all right, your job at one point also included overseeing Bioware yeah. at one point along the way. Uh, and you were, you were in that position when a game called Shadow Realms was announced and then uh, like about a about a year later, almost exactly, I went back and looked, it was ended up being canceled. Now, games get canceled all the yep. time uh, for, for various reasons, but the, the time is not usually that quick where it's like announced and then uh, actually uh, this isn't going to work. So did, did something change either with the project itself yep. on that or with the company's priorities? Uh, was it like seeing that the 4v1 mechanic wasn't really going anywhere? I'm just kind of curious... Yeah. You know, it's 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 a not every day that that a Bioware project is is publicly shelved. So I'm just sort of curious to know a little more about that. You know, it's interesting. I uh, I actually came in and and started working with the Bioware teams right as that was happening. And in fact, my first town hall meeting that I did in Bioware Austin, right, where that um, game was introducing myself. Um, was a week after that game uh, was canceled. So I, I wasn't actually involved in the decision okay. to cancel that game, but I will say that um, you know, as we start and stop various projects in the portfolio, um, it's always a variety of factors, and there's no one thing that yeah. causes a decision to be made. Um, some of it's priorities and resourcing. It's some of it there, that there's a need for resource where we need to accelerate something somewhere else or we have a problem somewhere else in the portfolio and we need to find um, a way to kind of move and, and, and push and invest somewhere else. Um, you know, sometimes there's projects that aren't going well that, that wasn't necessarily the case with Shadow Realms, right. but... Um, and, and we have to make the right decision to, to try and do what's best for the portfolio. So it's never easy sure. um, killing projects. Um, I've done it a few times in my career. It's, it's, it's not a fun thing to do, but sometimes it's what's best for the studio or best for the company at that given time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. makes sense. Yeah. Um, pivoting more to a happier note, the, so the EA Sports games, you talked a little bit about this. I mean, we've been seeing the introduction of these narrative-driven single-player campaigns uh, over the last few years, and hey, it turns... They've been really good. Like I think a lot of people are like, oh yeah, story mode and FIFA. That's 
that's that's charming. But no, it turns out they've yeah. they've been really good. So, um, is it is it tough to innovate in the sports space where you've got this fixed set of rules and these fixed leagues and teams and everything? It it very much is difficult. I mean it. I don't know if it's as, as difficult to innovate or it's difficult to build things that people see as innovation. It's a perception that we're constantly battling. Right. We have massive teams working on games like FIFA and Madden. We have teams working well in advance of the year that we're currently working on, our advanced teams that are building out and you know investing in innovations for the future. Um, but because so much of the game, because these games are massive and so much of the game remains intact each year and then we're often adding things or evolving pieces mm-hmm. and, um, you know, for those who want to say, hey, that's just, you know, feels a lot like a lot of the same, um, if you're not looking at the new stuff and, and enjoying those things, it, it, it's a difficult challenge that we're constantly facing. The story modes were um, one where I think it... it it was just clearly something big and new, and it was a new direction for those franchises. Um, and, you know, it was uh, something that took multiple years to build. Uh, the journey took multiple years. Uh, Longshot was in, I mean, Longshot was something we've been talking about for four or five years. Actually, when I came down in 2011 after building Fight Night Champion, my first meeting with Mike Young, who at the time was the art director of the Madden team, he's now a creative director of Madden. Um, my first meeting with Mike Young was like, all right, we're going to build something just like Fight Night Champion. We're going to build a story of Modern Madden. We've been talking about it since 2011. And it's been just what's the right time? I yeah. mean, I think, frankly, in the years that followed that, there were too many other high-profile things that we very much wanted to do with Madden to get Madden to the place where we wanted it to be from a gameplay standpoint mm-hmm. and a mode standpoint. Um, and and then when the time was right and, and, and also when the technology was available in Frostbite, that made it a lot easier to iterate sure. um, and build cinematics and that sort of content and string it together, uh, it, it felt like the right time. But it was difficult. I mean, a lot of learning, especially in the first versions. And I think um, with each iteration, our teams are getting better at, and better at the, at the storytelling element. Yeah. Uh, with, with gaming becoming more service-based, uh, you, talk about, you talked earlier about the way gamers are, are changing their consumption of sports and thus you need to evolve the consumption of EA Sports games. You know, we, we, see, it, we see games in general becoming more service-based, you know, longer tails on these games. Uh, is, is there a day coming where EA Sports games could be subscription-based, like a monthly thing rather than paying $60 once a year? I mean, is that... Is that something that you guys have to weigh and consider and, and look toward the future on? It's a conversation. Uh, it's, uh, you know, as we, you know, we recently announced our, our, our Origin Access Premier subscription on PC. So now we have a frontline a front content subscription on PC that we're, we're launching yeah. um, or that we just launched recently. And as we think about our future and building out a content subscription, you start to think about content in different ways. And so I, I absolutely think that there's a future coming where all of our content is part of more of a subscription-based service. And at that point, you start to think about how you deliver content to consumers in different ways. Um, and it's not just about every individual game necessarily being just part of a live service that's going all year mm-hmm. round, but it's also how do you fit in other different types of content. So it opens up the possibility of smaller games and smaller experiences. And um, it makes me think about the possibilities of 
kind of uh, adding to our sports portfolio in the long-term future as well, where we can fill gaps where we're currently Maybe a little, little NBA street revival? <laughs> I don't know, maybe. <laughs> I gotta ask about that. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> that was, a, was that a Vancouver project? Uh, yes, it yeah, was. It's so. been a long time, but, uh, and, and also there was an NBA jam built out of uh, Vancouver yeah, as well. Yeah, that one, that was 360. PS3 yeah, and those are great games. And I and I, you know, I'd say I think NBA Live. I think the team has done a great job of integrating a lot of street basketball into yes. the overall experience. Yeah. Um, and so we very much tried to focus on that and focus on building out that experience and integrating both the street and the league basketball into the the progression there. Uh, talk about another gear shift yeah. here. The the uh, Ed O'Bannon lawsuit. You guys were. Very, very high profile. I mean, this was mainstream news, not just video game news. You know, this, this idea of should, should college athletes be, be comp- financially compensated for, for their uh, efforts on the field? And you guys were part of this, the, the Ed O'Bannon lawsuit. Um, is, is that lawsuit specifically why, uh, you know, you were, you, nobody forced EA to stop making NCAA football and NCAA March Madness, but is that where that decision stemmed from? Yeah, I mean, I, I think at that time, well, like you said, it was just a, a massive story, this concept of college athletes and amateurism. And um, it was a much bigger story than just video games, even though the O'Bannon uh, suit came from a video game, obviously. Yeah. Uh, but it was about, uh, you know, all merchandising and and, and so on. Um, and it got to a point where it was just, it, it was a, a, a huge conversation that needed to be resolved um we felt like at the time all things considered the best thing was to uh, step away um and spend a few years away from the business and allow uh the forces at play to figure it out um and and give it room to breathe um with the hope that we either come out long term with some sort of licensing model that we can then re-engage with or have resolution on those discussions at a, at a college and player and athlete level um, where we could re-engage um, with a, a level of certainty that um, not only do we, are, are, are we treating all those parties in the right way and, and interacting with that content in the right way, but also we need to be able to give our fans a level of authenticity that allows us to call it an EA sports game and say this is sure. authentic college football. And we currently haven't found a solution from a licensing standpoint that will allow us to do that. So we're still waiting. We're still having conversations. I would love to be back in the college football business. Um, but we, we need to see things resolve in the real world Makes uh, sense. before that, we can do that. I mean, is it a case where do, do, the, do the lawyers say, well, if you keep going... Uh, we could be liable for a whole bunch more money later if this thing goes a certain way. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 don't I don't know, know if I'm going to comment works, on that, but, but I, it, uh, it, you know, it, it was too bad. I, I will yeah. tell you, you know, I, I, I will never forget the day that I had to stand in front of the, the Tiburon studio and, and break the news that we were going to stop building our college football games. And um, I kind of felt like we ripped the heart and soul out of the studio that day, and we had to kind of rebuild it from there. And, and, and Tiburon as a studio, the college football franchise was just something really special. It was highly and, rated, yeah. and a lot, of, a lot of, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, not, not to disparage the Madden team yeah. anyway, but I, I remember it being where a lot of the 
cool features uh, that you guys would do in football would originate yeah, in the, NCAA. The, the NCAA team was a, just a tightly knit group that just absolutely loved college football, and they just they would wake up every morning excited about coming in and making um, that game, and 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 they and they. They fought to try and make their game different. You know, Madden was the big commercial kind of behemoth at the time, and and so they they went out of their way to make it different and bring the college atmosphere, the pageantry, the tradition, the the unique kind of uh, play styles of each team, um, and you know, introduced some really cool game mechanics as well that that really kind of brought out that college game, and made it different. Um, it was really something special, and, and I, I hope someday we can go back to, to making those kind of games. So when you do have to break that news and when you lose, you know, again, looking at it from a business perspective, you have lost, you have, you know, by your own choice, yes, but you have lost a revenue stream at that point. So what does the company do at that point? Did, did those re, do those resources go into, like, Madden yeah. specifically with that team? Do you sort of seed a bunch of other little projects or ideas or things so what happens so to your point earlier about kind of new games and pitches and you know we 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 always have um, kind of a list of opportunities that are prioritized that we'd love to get to they don't we that we don't quite have the resources to build so at any given time there's always a variety of things that we would love to get to if we had the resources to do it Um, so when something like that happens um, we, we look to what those opportunities might be. And actually at that time, that was right after, I think, NCAA football 14 was the last one we shipped. Um, we were seeing the emergence of kind of the mobile category and mobile uh, sports gaming. And, uh, and actually as we stopped building NCAA and we were able to kind of strengthen and consolidate talent within the studio at Tiburon, we were also able to go bolster the team that was working on Madden Mobile. And we hadn't been successful yet in really breaking out with a Madden Mobile experience. Um, and we were able to put uh, an amazing group of people together with some people that were already on the project. And we put this all-star team on Madden Mobile. And then that following fall, we launched Madden Mobile and the game broke out. Um, and in fact, I think Madden Mobile that year generated more revenue than the NCAA football franchise had wow. the year before on console. So. Um, that, you know, it's an example of where, you know, you can shake things up and sometimes something bad happens, but it turns into something big and successful. Yeah. Talk about lemonade out of lemons. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, all right. Let's see. Uh, in fact, that's, that's actually the next question I wanted to ask you about mobile versions. I mean, a lot, most of the EA sports titles have mobile versions now. Uh, do you, do you try, how do you, how do you sort of look at those when, are you trying to engage the same customer that would be buying the console versions, or do you look at mo- the mobile titles as, as sort of their own separate platform, separate audience? I'm sort of curious from a from a top level sure. organizational perspective how the the, the mobile versions fit. Yeah, in. I mean, I think we often think about about it more in terms of gamer motivations and what they want to get out of an experience on each platform, and so we try to think about what gamers want on the mobile experience. And so, you know, when, when we kind of design what we want to do with something like Madden on the mobile device, we try to think about, um, you know, short, little, tiny chunks of experience, um, a small download that's easy to kind of pick up and download and play up front. We think about things that are rewarding and social, 
um, that have great elder games that keep you playing day in, day out. Um, so it's different patterns and behavior with how they engage with those games. Yeah. And in fact, and I, and I think the Twitch gameplay itself is much lighter um, and there's a lot more that the game's doing for you and then you're sure. lightly Has interacting be, yeah. as much as you want to. Uh, but what we've actually found is we do have a lot of common players. We have a lot of players that are playing both our Madden mobile game and our Madden HD game, for example. We see this in, in our other franchises as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're using them for different things. They're satisfying different motivations. Madden Mobile might be something that you play while you're on the bus or you're um, you know, uh, doing something in between meetings at work right. or walking to your next meeting on your phone. Um, whereas the, you know, the HD version is something you do when you have time to sit down and have a really immersive experience on a bigger screen. So it's just different motivations, building the best experience for the motivation of a player and what they want to do on each individual uh, platform. Makes a ton of sense. Yeah. Uh, here's, a, here's a fun one for you. When, when Tiger Woods runs into, let's say, <laughs> image troubles, and you have your company has a very successful, very long-running partnership with him and his brand. Uh, what's the initial reaction, and, and uh, do you, is it like head in the hands kind of thing, or do you just kind of immediately go into like, okay, well, how do we deal with this? Like, what's- well, without commenting, commenting on Tiger specifically, I think you know we, we are constantly, I mean, we're in the world of sports licensing with a lot of the things we do, and so we often will have... Uh, situations that come up naturally um, throughout all of our franchises every once in a while. Um, Whether it's a player we might have on the cover that something happens with in the media or, um, you know, something like what happened with Tiger. And, you know, the first thing we do is we sit down and we we talk about it and we get the facts and we try to understand, you know, what happened and what drove the, the incident. Um, We kind of go back to our own values as a company and, and, and what's important to us and, um, and we often involve a lot of people in that, that conversation, right? Up to, you know, Andrew as oh, a CEO, I imagine goes we, all we, the way we talk up, yeah. about these things. And, um, and then we decide what's the right thing to do. And, and, and we try to be open and honest and transparent with what we do and why we did it um, so that everyone understands where we're coming from. Um, but it's, uh, it's not always easy. But once again, we just try to, like, use our, our moral compass and values as a company to guide us right. with what we do. Uh, and... We noticed that Tiger was, did not nope did not last on the cover of EA game uh, the, the no. golf game for much longer no. after that. A no. uh, couple last questions for you. Your so your position uh, has in the past been a stepping stone stepping stone. Pardon me to the position of the CEO of EA. Uh, is that is that uh, your three year plan? <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> um, I think that was in the case of Andrew. I think Andrew was a Andrew Wilson's an extraordinary uh, individual with amazing talent and intelligence, and um, I think he was bound for that kind of role uh, in his career. I will say myself, I I love uh, working with with development studios and development teams. Um, Working with and leading teams and studios and people, that's, that's my calling and it's what I love. And I love being close to sports. And I was telling you earlier, I, I, I feel like I have one of the only jobs, uh, executive jobs in the video game industry. Where I, also, I also am a sports executive at the same yeah, time, which is cool. kind of my, my dream growing up. And so I, uh, I love my job too much to even think about doing something <laughs> like that. All right, last question. I would have 
I could not sleep at night if I didn't ask you this. Okay. Uh, and, and this is going to be a serious question, by the way. This is We're not talking about the EA Sports Arena okay. in Seattle, although that would be cool. <laughs> yeah, if you guys I, get the basketball back in I'm, Seattle. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Uh, so I'm, I'm a lifelong baseball fan. Baseball's okay. in my blood. Uh, MVP Baseball 2005 is, uh, I, think, I think it's still the greatest baseball it's game awesome. ever. It's I mean, awesome. yeah. MLB The Show is fantastic. So MVP Baseball... Uh, is it ever coming back? Uh, is EA ever going to make a major league game again? Because you know we knew why it went away. There was a, a contractual situation yeah. there with with a competitor. That is no longer the case. So uh, from the top here, the the, the, <laughs> the head of EA Sports, seriously, like what? That's got. Does it come up? What's what's sort of the the thinking at your level behind? Looking at baseball again. Yeah. So the the answer is yes. When we 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 are constantly talking about the sports that we're not in. Um, when we talk about the long range feature of our company, we talk about a content subscription and the gaps that we might have in our portfolio. Um, I would love to have a baseball game in our portfolio, and it's something that once again every couple of years we we take a look and we talk about it and theoreticize about like what what it might look like to get back into something like baseball. Um, but I will say, you know, the game that the team in San Diego have built, um, and it will be the, it's a fantastic oh, game. It sure I, is. I play it. Uh, I play the show uh, every single year. I play it with my son, uh, and we play it at home. And and it's uh, it's a great game. And and I think anyone who wanted to come in, and that's the thing about sports, when you want to try and take down an entrenched competitor, it's difficult, and it takes many years. But you're you're trying to do that now yes. on the NBA side. Yes. Yes, so you're are. clearly not afraid of that challenge. No, no. And, and, and I think um, on the NBA front, I mean, it's, a, it's also a basketball is a strong and growing sport. That's in the fair, right global now. market. It's a tremendous opportunity. Not, not as global, let's be um, honest. And so, you know, it's not necessarily that we, you know, won't be in baseball in the future. It's something we talk about along with a lot of other sports that yeah. we talk about constantly. It's more about prioritization, going after you know, the biggest opportunities with the resources we have, um, and kind of looking at opportunities we might have long-term as well to try and fill some of the gaps in the portfolio um, where we can, um, where in future models and business models, we might not all be competing in this AAA $60 Console space, right? Well, you guys have uh, you guys have had a, a strong partnership with Microsoft for a while, and there are a lot of there are a lot of Xbox fans who who go hungry in yes. the baseball in the yes. baseball department. So yeah. I will speak for them and say, <laughs> okay. we, we we want MVP back. Okay. But uh, Cam Weber, thank you so much. Thank I you. appreciate you sitting down here for the last hour or so talking to me. I learned a lot about your career. It's I, I think you have a, a fascinating job, and I I love the. The path that you have taken to get here, I, mean, yeah. I think it's it's awesome. So, uh, Cam Weber, the top dog at EA Sports, <laughs> officially the executive vice president and group general manager. Uh, I do these IGN unfiltered interviews every month, so be sure to check back uh, every month. They're all they're on YouTube, IGN, iTunes. Check it out. We've got thirty something other episodes. Uh, I'm Ryan McCaffrey. Cam Weber, thank you so much. Thank you. We'll see you next month. Right. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am extremely excited to invite you to Rachel Uncensored. It's my podcast where I sit down and get real with my friends and celebrity guests, where we talk about all sorts of topics. And sometimes we might be under the influence when we do so. We cover things from personal stories to hot-button issues. 
And it's the only place on the internet you can find an uncensored version of me. It's a side of me that you might not have seen before because it's not the most family or brand friendly. But don't worry, I'm still sort of slightly a decent human being. If you're intrigued, then make sure you check it out. New episodes drop every Wednesday. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored.